Welcome to season four of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel Shalom. Howdy. Holy Week. Rabbi, how are you? I'm good. I'm about to pass over into a holiday. That's right. Wait, so it, um, for us, this Holy Week, as we head towards Easter, uh, it, it, we think of this whole week as holy. For you, you're headed into Passover. Is is it a week? Is it a number of days? Is it What is this thing, passover Well, theologically or calendarly? Yeah, calendar-wise first, and right, you're what, welcome to talk about all the other stuff, too. Well, I think it'll come up in our topic, actually, um, the theological piece, which, you know, is kind of more fun. Um, calendar-wise, it lasts depending on um, your obser- one's observance. It's either seven days or eight days, and of course, a day begins in the evening. So it begins for all Jews at the same day, so tonight... Uh, Wednesday, April 5th at sundown is the first night of Passover. And then some people celebrate seven, some people celebrate eight. Uh, let's not get into that right now. But um, it is, in terms of nomenclature, a holy week, but we don't use those words. Um, you know, during the week, we refrain, most Jews refrain from eating bread, eating anything that can be considered leaven, because as the story goes, when the Israelites were told that, oh, hurry up, we're, we're leaving Egypt, uh, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so as a way to both remember and recreate that experience, we also don't eat leaven. Although uh, the idea of leaven um, not only symbolizing the actual leaven, but symbolizing things like puffing up our egos as leaven rises. Um, it, there's all sorts of, of added kind of meanings and interpretations, but that's the basic. But to answer the calendar question, seven or eight days. So today I've already had a bunch of pita. I'm having a beer just before dinner. And then no leaven, because, you know, leaven's in beer. Um and then eight days, and then uh, when when it's over, I usually feast on pizza. Right, leaven being yeast, uh, another more Americanized word for that, I suppose. And for us, it's Holy Week as well. We've uh, we've gotten through Palm Sunday. Um, tomorrow night will be Maundy. Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday. So it's a it's a big week for us as well. Much of it attached to in the way Jesus tells the story, or the the Gospels tell the story of Jesus. It is attached to Passover. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they sat down for Pasach meal, and they broke unleavened bread, most likely at that Passover meal, what we now call communion. So uh, I, I'm always a little creeped out when our uh, communion bread is big and puffy and light and fluffy, because <laughs> most likely the bread Jesus used was not that. Although if I'm correct, which I'd like to be, uh, the calendar date of Easter is not set based on Passover. Correct. Although they do, ha- all, I, and this is more for our listeners, they usually happen around the same time, just as Christmas and Hanukkah happen around the same time. Um, 
it, and there's a lot to say there, but it, it's essentially a coincidence that that they are not they are, they are not derived from each other in terms of the calendar or their definition. Right. Al- although the Christian calendar was probably crafted to put those two holidays near the Jewish holidays, either in a, wow, isn't that interesting mode, if we want to give them a lot of credit, or in a, ha, 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 we we will take advantage and take over these holy days of our enemies, if we want to be more honest slash nefarious. Exactly, exactly. Well, that, that aside, because we could spend probably hours just on Passover and or Easter, um, but why don't you tell us about our uh, topic today? Sure. We, we still had a bunch on our list to cover that we had signed up for and thought about covering. Um, and Eric texted me earlier today and said, okay, I've lost my Google Drive link. Tell me where the stuff is again. Um, and what are we covering today? So he can be prepared. Why are you calling me out? Why are you calling me out? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just telling the truth. Truth is never Man. a call out. Uh, and so I sent him a picture of our remaining eight or nine topics, and he goes, "Ooh, ooh, that one, uh, that that one being the decline of religion." Uh, institutional religion, what it means to be spiritual instead of religious, and how uh, our cultures are continuing to, even from inside institutional religion, lean away from some of the traditions or institutions of religion and expecting religion to be less traditional or institutional and more um, spiritual. Why? What does that look like? Uh, what is the uh, scriptural or communal response to that? Uh, is it a fad or is it a late trend in religion? We've got a lot of ways we can go with this one, buddy. Yeah. Um, do you want to start? You always make pick me a, start first. Fine, I'll start. I'll start. So I think the decline of religion is – because of two factors. One's very timely and one's not. Um, the, the timely is that, first of all, our, you know, our country is politically incredibly fractured. And there, as you and I have discussed, and I, as both of us have mentioned in our prospective congregations, there is no way to be, I'll say, a good clergy and completely separate politics. Now you could you could certainly separate partisanship and you can understand a balance and things like that, but to completely separate out politics with a capital P from religion is is not only a wrong decision, it's it's really an impossible decision, which I think both of us agree with. And I think people many people on all sides they get enough of it. They feel, and by the way, I'm speaking from others. I'm obviously not speaking for myself. And and even if they agree with what I'm preaching, with what you're preaching, they still don't want to hear it at church, at synagogue. I, I think also even more recently, COVID 
as I as I say, you know, to friends in my congregation, it's just decreased attendance in all things. People just don't leave their houses as much, even for social things. I mean, that's been true for for us. And I mean, it's also we have two kids, but. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are just not venturing out as much. And so the times they do, people are kind of rethinking about, okay, what are the things that are really important to me? What do I want to do with my family? And oftentimes, whether fortunate or unfortunate, I'm not going to put a valence on it quite yet, although, spoiler alert, unfortunate, um, religion kind of takes a back seat. I think generally speaking, you know, America in many ways is the antithesis. I'm going to say a statement I'm not sure I agree with and then probably double back on it. But it's the <laughs> antithesis of what a, a lot of what you and I preach and certainly teachings from our traditions in that, it, you know, in America, the so-called American dream is all about you succeeding, you doing your best, you making a lot of money. And there's not a lot there about communal responsibility, communal sacrifice for the good of the community. It's really about I, I, I. And, you know, I think most people would agree that a good American looks past that. But I do think it's kind of ingrained in who we are as a nation and who we are as Americans. Um, I remember as I was, I had to take a world religions class in seminary, and it was to teach us Christians to be aware we aren't the only game in town, um, and how to what uh, I know, and how to, <laughs> and how to understand our overlap and our camaraderie and our um, shared history that we have with so many of the other world religions, and we went pretty deep and wide on that. In that process, we saw how um, I come from a sales and marketing background uh, after I was an engineer, and we had what we called a product life cycle. When you launch a new product into a marketplace, there's um, very few early, early adopters. There's some who start to catch on, then the great majority of those who will enjoy that product or service. And then the those who hold on even after that product or service is fading, and then the late letgoers, um, where really that product or service is obsolete. Um, imagine when the last people to buy a car and still drive around a horse, <laughs> so or to give up their typewriter for a computer. Um, and what he showed us is that religions sometimes have waves like that especially in geographic areas. So uh, particular religions can grow to be huge in a particular area and then fade, and it migrates. Um, and Judaism has seen its population rise and fall as it moves um, through Europe to America, wherever. Uh, and uh, Christianity has seen that happen. And I wonder if part of what we call now, other than just the American division that, that you're talking about, another factor in that is the the life cycle of uh, the purpose and meaningfulness 
of our religions to the people that have attempted to practice them. Um, And so they pass on to their generation the habits, but they don't see the benefit that was promised, and they begin to fade on it. I think it's why young people um, perhaps give up faster on religion now than before and then before. We keep banking that they'll come back in their 30s when they have kids, but we're not even seeing that to be true anymore. Um, and and I think beyond the divisiveness, there is something about institutional religion is not doing what we promised we would do in making our countries and our world a better place. Well, you know, a word that I think about very often is relevance. That beyond being, you, you know, there's always those questions like, what are the best qualities in a pastor, preacher, rabbi? What are the worst qualities? And to me, if you are not relevant, if what you're not sharing isn't relevant, and this is as true for someone who's a preschooler and you're walking into the class with a guitar and singing a song for them, as it is, you know, the 95-year-old that you're visiting in the nursing home. If what you're sharing isn't relevant, nothing else matters. I mean, you could be fun, you could be nice, you could be warm, and those are all wonderful qualities and ones that I would like to believe I have. Uh, but but at the end of the day, you know, to, to quote something from Malcolm Gladwell from, uh, the, you know, the tipping point, it, without relevance, there's no stickiness. There, there's no enduring There's nothing enduring about what you're sharing. And so it has to be relevant to the people. And I think part of religion's problem, certainly Judaism's problem, is even Reformed Judaism, which purports to change things, people still want what they were. So something that I tell my longtime congregants, people who have been here 30 and 40 years, the congregation in 2023 is incredibly different than 1990, for example. Both in, not only in terms of demographics of, yes, people have died and people have had babies and moved, but where we are as a society, what we believe is good, what we believe is bad. I mean, 40 years ago, the idea of a, a gay rabbi, a gay Jew reading from the Torah was not really, I mean, that we've changed so much and largely for the better. Um, but when people kind of hold on to those attitudes, um, you know, and then y- young people are seeing that and they're like, this isn't what I want to be a part of. And I also think to a large extent, we are, we're teaching, how do I express this? We're teaching a third person version of religion and not teaching people how to have a first person experience. And one is much easier than the other. Like, you know, I could teach someone about the Talmud. Pretty well, actually, no, that's not pretty easy. I could teach someone about the Torah pretty easily, but to have them feel a passion with it and engage with it, that's something totally different. That's the difference between taking like a world history, a, a survey of world religions, and experiencing a world religion. Those are two vastly different things. Both of them are important, but they are different. Mm hmm. Yeah, the irrelevant thing as you were there, it's it reminding me of a, a study of why teens are leaving institutional religion. Uh, and it's, I don't remember, uh, X years ago, uh, 5, 8, 10, 12, 15 years ago. I can't, can't find it right now. Um, but I remember the four reasons why um, they broke it into two categories. One, culture. Was this the Pew? 
It might have been. It might have been Barna. It might have been that um, National Study of Youth and Religion. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but there was cultural reasons why. Um, for example, uh, teens are sick and tired of lectures. They, uh, they're too long. They uh, require de- deep attention um, where they're considered lame. Uh, so anything that is that long – and that consistent and requires you to be that unplugged for that long, our culture of the teen is now resisting. Um, teens like to be able to hop and to have multimedia experiences and to have a short attention span where it click, 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 clicks, right? You're three to five minutes on this one, and then you shift, and you're three to five minutes on this other thing. And maybe they're all connected, but they're different, and they uh, tend to grab attention and hold you longer. But the yep. reason that, that teens, in their own words, said that they were leaving institutional religion, four big words, judgmental, hypocritical, boring, and irrelevant. And and I'm, boy, like those really hurt. I, I can work on the boring. I refuse to be hypocritical, but they won't give you a chance because they, on their TikTok or YouTube videos, they see Christians or everywhere who are freakishly hypocritical and judgmental. So the last one is relevant or irrelevant, and that's the one you highlighted. I I find it difficult to convince a young, middle-aged, or older person the relevance of a story in Scripture. And I can draw as many examples and parallels and connections as possible, but I'm not going to expressly call them out in a sermon. I'm going to make them step into the water and find their place in the story so as not to hurt them or make them think I was naming them in a sermon. And I find so often people miss their place in the scripture and they think, well, that story's irrelevant. Why are we talking about uh, Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham and Sarah from thousands of years ago? And I'm like, because... Those in power had slaves, and they abused the slaves, and God loved them anyway and called them God's nation too. Can you imagine anywhere in our world today where we treat a whole nother group or class of society as less than, and God is saying, no, they are mine as well? And that if for me to be that explicit, that direct in a teaching or a sermon kind of I think is a, a little dangerous. Yeah, I mean, one thing, I mean, this probably goes with the irrelevance, but I just think modernity, you know, and and scientific inquiry and understanding, you know, there's that idea, again, which neither of us agree with, even though, well, you're more of an actual scientist than I am. But, you know, <laughs> in, in college, I don't know if you know this, I almost got a minor in um so my major was history, but it was almost the history of science. The reason why almost is because I was too lazy to do a dissertation. Um, but <laughs> science has kind of re- removed a lot of what people understand as religious questions. And so people see that science has kind of taken the role of religion, which, again, both of us disagree with. Um, what One thing, too, I find, and I... I would assume you you agree with this. I mean, this is certainly true in the Catholic Church with, you know, all of the horrible things that they've been dealing with, with, you know, priests and uh, some priests and whatnot, is people having awful memories or a, a 
really bad experience in their childhood and then kind of writing it off. And something I tell people all the time is clergy or prospective clergy. You know, when I talk to people who kind of want to go to rabbinical school, do not underestimate the power you have, especially with someone where you're you're helping them form their first Jewish memories, because those will stay with people. Um, I have a family right now that is um, struggling with some, you know, past memories of what a Jewish community did, not not in Athens, but when this, you know, when this person was a child and, you know, those those things stick. And and again, if you look at now 2023 and go back 50, 60 years, I mean, even in the last five years, the Me Too movement and I mean, there's been so many things where the way things were 30, 40, 50 years ago are absolutely unacceptable today. And rightly so. Um, but it creates, I think, a shift of where people were, th- what people kind of put up with then and are not willing to, again, rightfully so now. Those who um, gave up on religion because it was hypocritical, judgmental, boring, irrelevant, it did harm, caused trauma, whatever. I'm one of those kids. Religion, for me, caused trauma to me when I was young, um, the way it talked about uh, my dad after his suicide. So I I can look upon that, that realm and go, yeah, I get it. That's why a generation or two gave up on institutional religion entirely. Today's folks, the ones who have held on through the 60s to 80s, the 80s to the aughts, and now the aughts to the 20s, they've held on for a long time, and some of them are giving up now because good religion is going, we cannot support systemic racism anymore. Black lives matter. We cannot blindly support the nation of Israel anymore. They should not be stealing olive groves and running bulldozers through houses. And by the way, let me just interrupt you to say that Jewish congregations are right there with you, on, especially on that second piece. That yes. is not pure. Yeah. Right. And, and y'all are right there with us often on the Black Lives Matter piece. We're a weird minority Christian congregation that could say those things and stand there. But if I say them or if I stand there, if I stand for uh, women's ordination, if I stand for LGBTQ inclusion in all aspects of church, including leadership of church, I lose people that held on for two or three decades. They are like, What? That's not the way church is supposed to be. Those people aren't supposed to be included and allowed here. And so now they're finally giving up. And it is not a quick replacement of the two or three generations who left because the church was wrong on those issues. Now that we are waking up and getting some clarity on how we have to stand for justice, those other two or three generations are not coming back as fast as our stalwart holdouts are leaving as we look and sound more like Jesus. But I I can't stand to not sound like Jesus. And if somebody catches me not sounding like Jesus, uh, that is a heartbreaker. Uh, so I don't have that challenge. <laughs> but I do, you know, going talking about the stalwarts, you know, I do 
have a uh, empathy is not quite the right word, but I get it. Like you've been a member of this congregation 40 years. You've put blood, sweat, tears, and resources into its continuation and strength and, you know, been on committees and all these things. And now it's kind of changing before your eyes and it's not the congregation you knew. And perhaps it's not the one you want to know. I, I mean, I feel for that person. I do. Um, and it's uh, it's a really tricky thing. I mean, this goes back to kind of what is it like being clergy? Because you know, you're you're clergy for for everyone in your in your congregation. You're, you're not just clergy for the new people or the old people or the people who've been here there forever or you know whatever. So if if you had to describe, um, like I I know some what I guess what they're called are secular Jews. If that's a fair thing. They were bo- oh, 100%. They were born into a Jewish household. Maybe their parents practiced some uh, of the, the, the traditions of Judaism, whether or not they were attached to a community. Uh, but they've decided, you know what, I'm, I'm not attached to a community. I'm really not even going to practice many of the traditions. I might light some candles around Hanukkah time. I might do a little thingy, special thingy at Passover to teach my kids something about it, but I'm not involved in a community and I don't honor the traditions. What would you what would you say to that person to invite them to risk uh, re-entering the the disciplines in the community? Well, it's <sighs> I'm torn on that because, you know, my ultimate goal is not to have more Jews in the world. I mean, I, I do I want more Jews in the world? Sure. <laughs> do I love when, you know, someone... Could have fooled me, man. You keep popping them out, you know, you and your wife. Uh, just <laughs> No, no. Come on. No, we're done. Two. Two. That's nothing. The Chabad rabbi here has eight. It's, I'm nothing compared to, you know... Um, I'm just fruitful enough. Be fruitful enough is what I say. Um, oh, Joel, you made me lose my train of thought on that. To, where were we? What were you, we you were saying about? it's not your role to increase the number of Jews oh, yeah, on yeah, the yeah. planet. That I, you know, my primary role, is, and you know, much to the possible dismay of our budget. Because you know, the truth is, new members is new donations, all those things. I, do I want more members? Absolutely. But that is not my goal. My goal is to provide, again, a relevant, powerful, uh, from birth to death experience for our members. And my opinion is that is what attracts members. It, it's not the, the other way is the tail wagging the dog. And at the end of the day, if someone is convinced that it's not for them, I don't see it as my job to argue with them and make it otherwise. Do I invite them to maybe a Passover Seder at my house once we start having them again next year? <laughs> next year, Jews often, Jews at the end of Passover say next year in Israel, I'm saying next year, let's have a, a Seder again with 50 people. Um, you know, do I invite them to the synagogue? Do I talk to friends of theirs being like, hey, you should bring them over? Yes. But I am not kind of interested in convincing someone um that something is for them if they don't think it is. Now, if they come to me questioning and, you know, again, open door, open tent, 
as welcoming as possible. Um, another piece that I think is part of this too is, and this is true for every religion that I know of, is people have, you know, when we think of adults, especially adults who are intellectually curious and engaged with society, you know, they're often intelligent about a great many subjects. But with regard to religion, their understanding of it kind of stopped for in Judaism at age 13, or maybe they continued a few years in high school at 15. And so, yeah, it, it's hard to find relevance and power and beauty when it, I mean, it's been kind of cut off at an age before you could really get into the subtleties and beauties and complexities of it, right? Like, think of what you studied in college. If you would have studied it kind of as an elementary and middle school student and stopped there, you know, your knowledge would be would be nothing. Not nothing, but, you know. And so I, I think people forget or or they don't understand how complex with beauty religions are and can be. I, I do find it hard to like imagine trying to, I'm with you on the, I don't need to grow the number of Christians. Um, it's, it's just not a thing. Um, I do want to grow some kingdom. I, I want this world to look more and more like what I believe God's promised coming kingdom looks like. I'm less interested in getting people to heaven as I am getting kingdom of heaven to all the people. So yes, yeah, so I, I love that way you express that. That's fantastic, and, and that's my goal. But I I find myself having to unteach. Uh, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who have given up on institutional religion or faith, um, even those who call themselves spiritual but have given up on religion, um, I find myself having to uh, interview them and figure out what led them to that place and then offer a nugget or two out of my own theology or life or uh, practices that make them curious. Uh, most people that have given up on on religion or hold on to spirituality at the cost of institutional religion have some pretty strong assumptions as to why they've done that. Uh, well, yes. church blank, therefore I blanked, or I've never seen something, so I just assume that it's you know, it's not what church is, or I've seen some nasty stuff in church and I'm not, don't want to be a part of that. Okay. Gotcha. That's now, and now you've just stereotyped all Christians and all churches with that highly frequently true uh, reality. But I try to give them a little taste of me that challenges that, uh, or this church or reform theology or this kind of way that we do worship and practice and and make them go huh <laughs> wow i hmm and you're probably the same like oh my gosh no my my mom would never let me blank and blank and blank and blank and the rules were that we had to blank and blank and blank so i gave up when i went to college and never went back and i'm not going to raise my kids that way yeah. and then you're like or people the common one a very common one for me is when people so you talk about secular jews um 
You know, people say, oh, I can't belong to a synagogue. I don't believe in God. And it's like 20% of our congregation would say they don't believe in God. And I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm really not. But, I, you know, as you and I have talked about, we don't need to get into it. Like religion, the practice of religion and belief in God are not a one-to-one correlation, nor should they be. And, you know, other than saying, well, you know, I, I think there's other way I express my opinion, but, you know. I don't see myself, I, I don't want to be a salesman for religion. I, I mean, and at the same time I am, but I that's not, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be like on the corner rotating the sign, you know, when you see like oil change, come here for meaningful, relevant religion, $9.99, you know? You are going to have the big uh, air inflated bouncy guys out in front of the synagogue for yeah. Passover. Oh, I love those. Those are <laughs> Oh my, right. Yeah, a salesman for religion. I exactly. Uh if I find somebody whose life seems grounded and well-rounded and they're working for justice, right? They're doing it. They're already living a faithful religious spiritual life. Now, I am aware that there could come moments where a communal uh faith experience and faith practices could be really helpful to that person and that life and that family either in the past, but we weren't available to be there for them, or in the future. Um, but I, I'm not going to insist or even suggest, uh, but I do love it when people realize, oh, wow, institutional religion actually cares about things it should care about, a- actually is trying to make the difference in the world that it should be trying to make. And that is surprising. Yes. To them, that the reason they gave up was institutional religion was self-centered or judgmental or hypocritical or irrelevant. And if we find that, oh no, this one's like grace-centered and radically pushing for justice and sacrificial with its own funds to support global and local efforts to to heal and reconcile, when people are surprised that institutional religion is doing what it should have been doing all along. I love that. And it's not that I'm trying to sell it or grow a church. I'm just trying to grow a kingdom, (laughs) whatever that is. Yes. And I I will say, um, I want to say two things if that's acceptable. Um, I started and I'm going to end it, darn it. Uh, That is a large Pepsi, Joel. Is Pepsi in there? That is a no, lot it's of a, caffeine, my friend. It's a Pepsi cup with sweet tea in it. Oh, they! Oh, look at you! You having your southern southern roots coming back? I like that. Um, so, of course, I forgot both things now. One, one of them is, you know, with the rise of anti-Semitism, I do think that it means something to belong to a synagogue, even if you are kind of a secular Jew that quote unquote isn't into organized religion. If you and so for our listeners, and I'm kind of saying this out loud for me too, because you know, I, I feel like I need to challenge myself to say this more often to some families in Athens. You know, th- if you are concerned with anti-Semitism and feel passionately about that, you should belong to a congregation. Because that is how 
that that's the communal voice of the Jewish community. I don't care what denomination. I don't care. Like I'm not, this is not, you know, come join my congregation. This is, you, you, you know, have your voice as part of that solidarity. The, the second thing, and this goes when somehow I remembered the first thing you asked me, Joel, about Passover. And I said, oh, I'll speak about it in our topic today. You know, Passover is considered the most observed Jewish holiday even by people who consider themselves secular and don't belong to congregations, et cetera. And I think the reason for that is precisely in a lot of the things that we're saying are important. Meaningfulness, relevance, justice, personal ability and responsibility to change the world, all family, friends, joy. Um, these are all messages of Passover, and they're all intermingled in this sensory experience of taste and movement and smell and prayer that in Judaism, there's certainly parts of that in all of our holidays, but Passover is the, is really the epitome of all of that. And I think that's why, you know, people will come to a Passover Seder and often say, oh, yeah, I should I should go to temple more. I really like this, like that kind of thing. We have what are what we call creasters. Um, they only show up for Christmas and Easter, uh, and for some strange reason, uh, I guess you know if their parents put some semblance of, "Come on, you've got to go with me. It's Christmas." Okay, fine, I'll do it as long as it gets me. Oh, we have the same thing: Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There it is, right? <laughs> and Passover, <Yeah>. apparently. <laughs> But I well Passover yes yes but Passover is not a congregational holiday even though we do lead a seder um, and that's tomorrow night. For me, the thing I like about Passover is it, it it's a success story. You know, it's where in this weird way the oppressed people found freedom. They they were rescued. God's promises were kept. They, God heard their cries, showed up in radical, present ways, and led them, despite their complaining, <laughs> through generations, gave them gifts, fed them day by day, and walked them toward a, a promised land, a, a better present, a better future. That success story is a seed of hope. And if anything, the, the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns of today, are looking for real hope, not fake hope or false hope, but real hope. And Easter is supposed to be like that. It's it's where whatever death is, uh, it, it is not a slavery. It is not a, a final. It is not an end. Yeah. It, it has, there is a hope that extends beyond it. And, but what I find is, uh, somehow, the people who love hope and want it, they can't they can't attach the hope of a past like um, Passover, remembering the uh, escape from Egypt, or Easter. They attach that one to only future. I need the N O N E S to make it relevant by having hope now, and to believing that hope is possible now. The same. Escape and rescue is possible now, um, and I I find it really hard to convince people today 
that hope is worthy of of effort and time and discipline and showing up for mm. week after week after week because the world has taught them to give up to quit um you know how many how many more school shootings do we have to have right but it, people are giving up hope that we can make a difference now and if you fight in Nashville you are kicked out of the state congress apparently um i i'm I don't know why, but I have a feeling that when they say irrelevant, they mean I can't believe your hope, a synagogue or church. You don't give me a hope that seems real today. Mm, I like that. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> no, but <laughs> no, but I like what you said. Just to be clear, um. In terms of thinking about how, how we use hope and things like that. So your meal is all set and ready. You're getting things. Well, tonight is just family. We're, we're doing like a family Seder. Um, and then tomorrow night is the, the bigger congregational one. When where did you source the bitter herbs and... Who sacrificed the lamb? And so there is a shank bone. Um, no, I don't. No member of my family physically. Uh, no lambs were hurt by any of my family. <laughs> what uh, else is on that that precious plate? Figs or nuts? There's an or? egg that kind of represents the cyclical nature of life. There's the salt water representing the tears in Egypt. Um, I'm forget the matzah, of course, which uh, symbolizes, as we talked about, the the uh, bread that they couldn't get to rise. Um, yeah, I mean, Passover is filled, with, like I said before, with both symbols that remind us of our history, but more, the most important lesson of Passover is um, in every and and I'm saying the English paraphrase, but almost word for word. Um, Every generation is uh, obligated to feel that they themselves were freed from Egypt. And so it's very much, again, this kind of personal holiday. And do you make it relevant by asking, so what are the tears that we cry today? What are the Absolutely. What are the bitter herbs that Absolutely. we taste today? You, you need to come to one of my uh, seders, Joel. You guys are invited. I'd you be happy wife. to the boys too. try to read Hebrew with you anytime. <laughs> Oh, you could we, yeah, we we got it, um, but yeah, I'm gonna go prepare for said, uh, um, seder, and uh, as always, wonderful talking to you. And when is Easter? Is it this coming Sunday? Yes. Well, have a meaningful. Is saying have a meaningful Easter? Oh, that's great. Something I can say. Of course. Thanks okay. for that. Sure. I mean, is that. Typically, your greeting is he is risen, right? He is risen indeed is how we yes. often say it, that, right? Like like the bread. There it is. <laughs> I'm using that. And on that note, keep it real, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today. 
and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real. Is there a special name for the week in which all this happens? No, but Passover is considered... Um, Oh, you're going to have to delete this because now I have to think about it. Is Passover a pilgrimage holiday? Sukkot? Shavuot? Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. See? See what you do to me?